Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Lost in Science for another week where we're going to take you deep inside all the news that is happening in science and some other stuff. My name's Claire. I'm today going to be talking a little bit about food wastage, about what you've got in the back of your fridge. Stu, what do you have in the back of your fridge? Nothing, because I cleaned out all of the compost that had accumulated there. Oh, you're, you're a good <laughs> egg, aren't week. you? Yes. You're a very good egg. How about you, Manisha? Do you have anything? I have a few things. You've got a few things, yeah. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about that and why it's making such a big environmental impact and then some sort of like initiatives that are happening in, cool. um, in Melbourne to sort of combat food waste, which is, which is cool. Yeah, it is cool. Yeah. And I feel bad now for... Okay. Yeah, I know it's an extremely for wasting your food. Yeah, it's an extremely guilt-ridden issue. It is jars that you don't finish. And it's then they go that's, off. that's right. It's right? true. Yep, yep. Um, and there's the. I'll also be talking about an app that helps you combat that. So stay tuned for that. Ooh. Manisha, what do you? What have you got for us today? Um, so I'm talking about something a little chemical, or not a chemical, an element that we are oh. all very familiar with. It's uh, one of the most <laughs> abundant or common. <laughs> Elements by mass on Earth, as Wikipedia tells me. Um, I'm going to be talking about iron and how our bodies use it and why it's so essential to us. Not the ironing. No. But the... I'm not talking about making your shirts all pretty. (laughs) Well, you know, it is from the same thing originally. You used to put a bit of iron in the fire to heat it up and then you'd iron your clothes with it. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to hearing about iron. Iron, yeah, I know. It comes up a lot, especially in like... Oh, yeah, Do you talk sure. a little bit about magnetism? Not talking at all about magnetism. I'm just kind of talking about how our bodies... Oh, right. From right, a biological like, perspective. Yeah, just, you know, we all hear it that... Well, at least a lot of women I know will hear it that we have lack of iron. So, hmm. And Stu? I'm going to be talking to Professor Damien Burrows from the Centre for Tropical Water and Aquatic Ecosystem Research at cool. James Cook University about why... Our North Queensland friends. Yeah, our North Queensland friends about why a whole lot of mangroves are dying suddenly in the north of Australia. I am so glad you were talking about this story because I've been meaning to get to this story. Everyone's talking about the reef, but no one's talking about the mangroves. No, and it's it's a huge, huge amount, like more than half the mangroves in northern Australia are threatened or dying already. So um, I'm going to talk to... Damien Burrows and find out why and what does it mean and what's causing it all. Um, all right, on with the show. <laughs> so last night I reached into the back of my fridge and found some old baked potatoes that had been there for, Yuck. I don't know if I even want to admit it. Were there things growing on it? Yeah, yeah. yeah it was probably around six weeks that they'd been oh, there. Nope, so what, no. you baked potatoes and then put them back in the fridge? <laughs> Because they were leftovers. Yeah. And I was like, I'll definitely eat these. Tomorrow I'll turn them into bubble and squeak. And then six weeks later I'm like, What's oh, bubble and squeak? Oh, oh, really? Oh, but bubble Sorry, and squeak. Is after, this after, important? You have, after you have the Sunday roast, yeah, right. um, the next couple Sweet of days, day. you put all of the roast veggies together and you sort of just 
um, fry them up. Yeah. Um, and that's called bubble and squeak. Iris. It's really yum. Sometimes, cool. sometimes with an egg, if you're really, you know, adventurous. adventurous yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. Um, so no, I, I felt, all yeah, this, unfortunately my potatoes didn't turn into bubble and squeak. Um, they were, they were pretty gross six weeks down the drive. They turned oh, into compost. No. <laughs> they turned into compost. I felt disgusted. I felt, and I felt extremely guilty that I had wasted I, food. Oh man. And, I feel you. And I don't, yeah, as you are saying, I'm, I'm not alone here with no. food wastage and, and your report funded through Melbourne's Lord Mayor's office has found that Melbourne generates more than 900,000 tonnes of edible food waste every year. Wait, is that just in our households or like our grocery stores and stuff too? That would be in our grocery stores as well. Yeah. Grocery stores, cafes and our households. But it equates to around 200 kilos per person of food. Oh. Per person. Poor, oh, poor that, person. Per person. Per person. <laughs> How long does it take you to eat 200 kilos of food? That's, I don't know, but it's a, a lot of skanky time. potatoes, all, isn't yeah. it? Oh, yeah. man. Now, the authors of the report did the stats um, on the strain of the environment, the strain of growing this food, and found that it used 180 gigalitres of water each year. So that's equivalent to an extra 113 litres per person per day. In Melbourne. Wow. In Melbourne. So running your shower for an extra 10 minutes every night. Oh, my God. Not only that, use the land use, so 3.6 million hectares of land, and that's not even including the greenhouse gas emissions. So the wasted food is responsible for about 2.5 million tonnes of greenhouse gas oh emissions, 60% of which um, is generated by food waste rotting in landfill, which, as you guys know, means that it would actually rot anaerobically, so without oxygen. And produce methane. And, exactly, produce methane gas. So methane gas is a worse gas to end up with, worse than carbon dioxide, because it is around 21 to 25 times more damaging as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So if if you're letting things rot without air... It's 21 to 25 times more damaging to the atmosphere than if you let things decompose within, like, in the presence of oxygen. Not only that, if you get built up of methane gas under the ground, it can explode. <laughs> yes. It has actually exploded in garbage dumps oh, around the world. Oh my goodness. So it's not, it's not a good thing. Let's, yeah. let's just say that. I'm just like really feeling really guilty about any food I let go to waste now. And. I think a little bit of guilt is a good thing, mm. but it hope hopefully it will inspire and motivate you to, you know, do something about it. Yep. So there's been a couple of really interesting local local and global solutions to the food wastage issue that I thought I would share with you, Manisha, because you are feeling guilty. Oh, do it. Do it, Claire. Down in the heart in the city of Melbourne, um, on one of our most favourite and popular laneways – DeGrave Street, which has got all the cafes and restaurants. Very hip, very funky. The food scraps from 90 businesses, which equates to about two and a half tonnes per week, are taken to the bottom of a building on Flinders Lane and dehydrated there and then chopped up and turned into organic fertiliser that are then spread out onto parks and gardens in the city of Melbourne. Wow. Yeah. How good is that? Yeah. So it's a council initiative and it works on many levels, I guess. You've got the fact that you're producing organic fertilizers and also um, lower carbon emissions because of what we talked about with the whole like not letting it go to waste. Not letting the methane be produced and it's creating jobs in the city as well, which is always good. good. And the machine 
does the work. So it actually sort of like shreds and also heats the waste at the same time. So I guess it would be fairly heat expense, like, or use a fair bit of energy, but it, it removes all the moisture content and it's extremely effective. So it only takes about 10 hours to turn over cool. quite a large amount of raw food and turn it into this um, soil food fertilizer. So, I mean, I'm thinking sort of in the future, it would be extremely uh, useful in big blocks of units, oh, you know, yeah. with urbanization in big apartment blocks, having something like this at the bottom of each apartment block and then use that on community gardens or something like that as a fertilizer, use that the output. So that's that's one sort of that's really initiative cool. taking place. Another Go one um, on a personal level, um, and this might be helpful for you, Manisha. Oh, no. Like you, I find it difficult to remember what I have in the fridge or the freezer or the pantry. And I always end up buying similar things. You All know. the time. Jeez, I have like three bottles of ketchup. Like who even needs that much ketchup? <laughs> yeah, well, there's this app and it's called Cloud Freezer and it helps you keep track of your fridge, your freezer and your pantry. So you can create shopping lists on it. You can like like scan barcodes and cool. and like say what's in your house and then um, when you create shopping lists, it's like, actually, uh, 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 Manisha, you don't need that. You've already got three ketchups slash tomato sauces in the oh, house. Oh, sorry, Australia. <laughs> you don't need to buy that fourth one. Yeah, and then you can be at work and create fun and new meals just with your app. Oh, cool. I, what, okay. does it give you? I don't know if you actually can do that, but that's something that I think oh, that they should build they into should it. They should build into it. Like, yeah, so what what can I make with vinegar and um, tomato sauce? I've got vinegar, mustard and ketchup and <laughs> half a loaf of bread. So obviously, so yeah, the world's now coming to terms with how much of an issue this is for our growing population, for our climate, our natural resource management, the there's now a new global sustainable development goals. Goals to halve the global food waste per person that is generated by cafes, restaurants, and then also personal waste. I guess that's really important. Yeah, yeah. So Australia's sort of on board. They haven't sort of come out with their own goals yet, but they're working towards a food strategy for 2025. But I hope that we can all sort of just take some personal initiative with this as well rather than wait for a top-down approach to mm. to work its way through and maybe just be more conscious and eat a bit more bubble and squeak along the way. So I've got another sort of foodie Sort of start, sort of story for you today. Um, basically, okay. So I grew up in this in a vegetarian household, and then I moved out, and I thought all things were great. But then I realized that I am not very good at creating like <laughs> good and healthy and balanced diet for myself. Like ah. I'm just really bad at eating good things. Okay. As in um, getting all your micro and macronutrients? Yeah, basically. Just getting anything that's healthy and that need, that my body needs <laughs> to, like, function. I just – I spent a lot of time when I was, like, 18 just relying on, like, fast food and Subway. Chips. Oh, jeez, man. So <laughs> many chips. Just so bad at that. And, like, it really made me appreciate how good my mum is at making sure I get – Everything you need. Yeah, like, proper food. Like, how good is my mum, right? <laughs> okay, beyond, like, relying too much on – fast food one of the biggest things that was lacking in my diet was that like I wasn't getting enough iron from my diet and so I became um, iron deficient basically and I think a lot of people particularly women will sympathize with me 
um, with this one because it's a pretty common thing to become iron deficient. So basically, I thought today that I would talk about how we use iron and what happens when we lack iron. Okay, so iron, it's one of those elements and it's involved in all of these biological processes and it's really, really important. Um, and the one or one of the reasons it's really important is because it's bound to cofactors. And basically cofactors... Oh. Ooh, so fancy. Cofactors. Okay, but they're these like... They are compounds that are then necessary for the biological activity to happen. So it's not just the iron, but the iron is the thing that's connected to all the things that are really good. Yes? Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, basically, so they... The cofactors are these sort of like helper molecules and they bind to enzymes and proteins and assist in productions or like to begin certain um, cell processes. One of the best known iron containing protein in our body is hemoglobin. Mm. And hemoglobin is one of those proteins is a protein in a family of proteins known as heme proteins. And hemoglobin is in, in your blood. blood. Yeah. Right. In so, your red blood cells. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's your red blood cell. So a lot of the time you'll hear uh, when people say that the red blood cell count is low or the hemoglobin count is low. And it's because so um, uh, like it's part of these heme proteins and these heme proteins are really important in our body because they transport things like gases or they build enzymes or they transfer electrons. So they're just these essential building blocks in our mm-hmm. body that we really need to make sure that we're getting uh, like these uh, important things um, around our body. And the reason that iron is important here is because um, this whole heme complex is an iron that is in the middle of an organic ring that's then carrying all of these gases, our electrons and things around our body. So so the reason hemoglobin is really interesting or important is because it's the one that carries oxygen around our body. So it carries oxygen from our lungs and it transports it to the rest of our body where it can then be taken up in the tissue. So when we're like low in hemoglobin or if we have a low blood, uh, red blood cell count, you can start to feel ill or really fatigued or weak or in some cases even worse. So basically without oxygen, you can't, your muscles can't do any work because exactly. they have no oxygen to, um, for respiration and, and they can't All actually of their cell do anything. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so if we don't have the iron, we can't make the heme proteins and then we can't actually transport oxygen around. So we can breathe in all we want, but it's not actually getting anywhere and it's mm. not getting to where it needs to be. Iron is actually an element that we pick up from our diet. We don't really readily produce iron in our bodies. And it's rich in a lot of different foods, things like uh, red meats or poultry and fish. But it's also really rich in things like... There's, there's iron in, in white meat as well? Yeah, yeah. It's mm. pretty... Um, it's more in red meats, but mm-hmm. it's it's uh, there there is um, iron in poultry and... Okay, and fish. And fish, yeah. Um, but there, it's also in lentils and beans and leafy vegetables and chickpeas. And so there's a whole host of other things. Also, that ha- um, apparently, uh, pumpkin seeds and yeah. um, sunflower seeds are really high in iron. Yeah. yeah. Did I hear the other day that spinach isn't actually that high in that iron. Is true. It's high in iron if you don't cook it. But, Raw but spinach also, is not cooking their sp- oh baby spinach. But also the the original um, estimate of the amount of iron in spinach had a decimal point in the wrong place. <laughs> oh no. So they thought it had a, a lot more iron, which is the whole the whole Popeye thing yeah. came yeah. from this study that someone did in the spinach early 1900s or late 1800s and they got a decimal point in the wrong place oh, and no. Oh, no one fact checked it no one fact checked well no no one repeated the experiment for years so mm. yeah 
Bad science. Bad, bad, bad science. Bad. So our bodies also are worse at picking up iron from veggies. Vegetable sources, mm. yeah. Yeah, like um, picking up iron from meat is a lot a lot more easily absorbed. Um, but, iron, but iron is a it's in a lot of pigments in plants, so it's often bound up in ways that it's not. So your body accessible. needs to unravel it first. Yeah, yeah and I think that, I think if you if you have vitamin down. C, it's easier to absorb iron oh, and things right, like that. Okay. So there's, yeah, there's and other vitamin ways B12 to, and things like yeah. that. Yeah, so the uptake is actually really tightly regulated by our bodies since we don't actually have a, a regulated way of excreting iron. So basically, you don't. So instead of taking up too much and then being able to excrete it, we our bodies are really good at just controlling how much we take up in the first place. And in a very small proportion of the human population, this uptake, it's just, it's not properly regulated. And it actually results in hemochromatosis, which means that there's an overload of iron. And um, some studies have shown that this accumulation of iron, if it particularly happens in places like your hippocampus, um, in your brain, it can be associated with different diseases, things like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. But it's kind, so you kind of want to watch Like, you don't want to just say, oh, I'm starting to feel sluggish. I should just pop a lot of, like, just get iron tablets from the chemist. It's probably really important to go and um, get your blood works checked out and see what's really playing um, playing a role. Because as we mentioned, different things, you might be getting enough iron, but you don't have enough vitamin C, for, for example, to actually take up the iron. So maybe there's different things that are playing into this. And yeah, and if you, if you are getting, if you've got too much iron and you've got hemochromatosis, the only thing that they can do... Is, I love this word. They give you a phlebotomy. What does that mean? That means they bleed you. Oh no! Okay. So you've got to. You, they basically take blood. Take the blood out. And that is that a great word. Phlebotomy. Too. I love it. Oh, wow. I love it. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to get a phlebotomy. <laughs> I'm just gonna, you know, monitor like what I eat and try to be a bit better and maybe cut out the chips a bit. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to a Lost in Science. So I've got on the line with me Professor Damien Burrows, who is from James Cook University and part of James Cook, where they study aquatic ecosystems. Thanks for joining us on Lost in Science, Damien. Thank you. Glad to be here. So what is it that you actually study at the Centre for Tropical Water and Aquatic Ecosystem Research? Well, we study uh, any aquatic ecosystems, really, whether they be freshwaters, Groundwaters, estuarine waters, or marine waters, and we have you know, physicists and oceanographers and chemists and biologists and social scientists. So we're looking at all different aspects of those aquatic ecosystems. So we're taking a fairly multidisciplinary approach. We also take an approach where we work mainly on applied issues. So we're protecting the Great Barrier Reef from catch and runoff. We're working with farmers. We work with a lot of mining companies on on their management, for example. Uh, a lot of indigenous groups. So we're actually predominantly working on applied uh, management issues in relation to uh, managing aquatic ecosystems. Now, in the news lately, there's been a lot of focus on the on the Barrier Reef. Probably a bit less attention has been paid to the mangrove ecosystems, which are quite extensive in the northern parts of Australia. Yeah, well, Australia has the third largest uh, distance of coastline with mangroves of any country in the world. And our mangrove ecosystems are probably the best protected of any country in the world. So it is uh, a special place that we have in, in internationally in terms of uh, mangrove protection. But yeah, northern Australia's coastline is you know, mangroves all around. 
And yes, we do tend to pay a lot of attention to the Great Barrier Reef, and, and sometimes the mangrove ecosystems do get yes, <laughs> a little bit ignored by comparison. Uh, but they're extremely important, that's for sure. Okay, so um, they naturally sort of ebb and flow and bits die off and other bits regrow. Is there a trend that more of it's dying off than normal? Uh, uh, well, only, only with our recent dieback event that we've recorded in the Gulf of Carpentaria. Prior to that event, we've again, we, we would have said probably not. Uh, they seem to be relatively stable across the, if you look across all of northern Australia. Um, hence why the recent big dieback event that we've recorded in the Gulf of Carpentaria is so alarming because it really does... We're used to having little dieback patches here and there all the time, but this is a huge dieback event that has just occurred and is, is obviously very alarming. Can you give me some details about what happened in the Gulf of Carpentaria? Yes, well, earlier this year we started receiving... Community members were sending us a couple of photos about their local patch of mangroves saying, oh, look, our mangroves have died. And so this isn't unusual for us to receive a few photos from community members pointing this out at a local scale. But we realised that we'd been sent photos from several different locations, like vastly different locations, separated by hundreds of kilometres from the Gulf of Carpentaria. And when we spoke to those community members, they told us that it all died, happened about November in 2015, so about the same time. So we realised that people had sent us photos of dieback in different places occurring at the same time. And we thought that was a bit unusual. We then checked with some satellite imagery and realised that, which can go back in time, you know, retrospectively, and realised that uh, indeed a, a large proportion of mangroves hadn't died in the Gulf of Carpentaria coast. We subsequently, through more checking with satellite imagery and doing a little bit of an on-ground investigation and talking with more people who work and live in that area, we've mapped out that approximately 7,000 hectares of mangroves along a 1,000-kilometre front have died. And that's between Corumba on, on the east and the Queensland side of the Gulf of Carpentaria and the Roper River in the west. So pretty much along between Corumba and the Roper River, that whole southern and southeastern coastline of Gulf of Carpentaria, there's varying degrees of mangrove dieback along that whole area. This is, we believe, the largest mangrove dieback ever seen in the world. So it's a globally significant uh, event, probably. Have you got any ideas about what what has caused that massive dieback event? Well, clearly it would have to be climate, and that's the most logical and likely explanation. This is fairly synchronous. This event, it's occurred along a huge area of coastline. It's occurred about the same time, between November and December 2015. Uh, I just can't think of anything else that it it could be. If it was uh, some sort of chemical contamination, it wouldn't, wouldn't cover such a large area. If it was a disease, the disease would spread slowly from one area, progressing towards the other. Uh, It wouldn't be so synchronous like this event is. Uh, We can only think that it's climate's the only thing that can cause synchronous dieback across such a huge area. And looking at the climatic records, the Gulf of Carpentaria has had two years of very dry, very low, anomalously low rainfall. The temperatures in the air temperatures and the sea temperatures were anomalously high. And apparently there's some suggestion that we're looking into that the sea level might have dropped slightly about the same time as well. That's coming from the Bureau of Meteorology. So there was a number of anomalous climatic uh, things going on about the same time as this dieback event occurred. So we're trying to look into a bit more science to look into the exact causes, but um, I think surely it's, it's related to climate. And potentially I think the most likely aspect would be the, the low rainfall uh, and low soil moisture in amongst the mangroves. 
Mm. It's very difficult for mangroves growing in a highly saline environment to get access to clean, fresh water. So in the area that's been hit with the dieback, how much of the mangroves in that particular area have been hit by the dieback event? Well, the, the, the dieback is actually worse on the Northern Territory uh, side of the Gulf than it is on the Queensland side. And even though we lost about 7,000 hectares of mangroves, which is huge across that whole area, there's still plenty of other mangroves there that are, don't appear to have suffered in the dieback, at least not, not appearing in the satellite imagery as being affected. And for context... Across that whole area between Corumba and Rover River, it's about 6, six to 9% of the mangroves have been affected by the dieback. So across that whole area, the majority of the mangrove forest don't appear to have been damaged, at least in the satellite imagery. We, if we get on the ground, we might find out that they are suffering stress, but not necessarily suffering dieback. So I guess the point is, even though 7,000 hectares, which is huge, have died, there's still plenty of other mangroves there that, will, that have survived. And those will then form the, the source of you know, recolonisation and recovery um, of the dieback-affected areas. And in some areas, the dieback has been slight, you know, and in other areas, it's been quite severe. And obviously, we'll, we'll be focusing on such, those few of the areas where it's been quite severe. But across the whole area, it's certainly you know, in that 6 to 9% category of, of the mangroves that have been affected. So there's at least some hope that recovery will occur in the future. That's why we are confident and optimistic that recovery will occur because there are plenty of other surrounding mangroves that can uh, assist in uh, nature recovering the, from this event. So you're going to be doing further work. I guess uh, you'll be carefully watching the surrounding mangrove areas as well to see if this dieback spreads even further. Well, we certainly will be. Uh, and that's what we, we hope to do. We're, we're currently applying for funding to obviously spend more time uh, on the ground they're doing more detailed assessments of the patterns and the extent of the damage. So far the assessment's been largely uh, from satellite imagery and people sending us photographs and things like that. There's been not, hasn't been a lot of time spent on the ground assessing the patterns of damage. And if we get on the ground and we see which species are being affected in which tidal zones and which areas, we can get a, once you look at those patterns, you can get a bit pretty good idea of the kinds of processes and the vulnerabilities of different species in different environmental settings and that could really help you pin down the cause of this dieback a lot better. In particular, we also need to look at the recovery rates. I mean, obviously there's a commercial fishing and there's a biodiversity and recreational fishing, indigenous interests and local communities up there that are very concerned about this dieback. And if we can go on the ground, we could make a, an assessment of the prognosis for recovery and, and also direct government agencies and other management agencies into where they might need to maybe intervene in the recovery or whether nature should take its course or basically work out a bit of a plan for what we should do. So it's very important, I think, to, to get on the ground and get some good science describing this dieback. Okay, well, um, thanks for joining us on Lost in Science, Professor Burrows, and good luck with your further research. Okay, no worries. Thank you. <laughs> That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough, 
lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost Lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.